sort of like a like a living Stockholm syndrome too. You know, at some <laughs> point you you start to identify with your captors. Yeah. <laughs> That was Tom Lax, founder of Silk Breeze Records, our guest this week on Sandpaper Lullaby. Silk Breeze Records, which celebrated its 30th year in operation last year, sprang from Lax's fanzine of the same name, a publication no one would get away with in the present day. Tom would definitely get canceled, for sure. In its time, the label has been synonymous with releasing artists that were on the outer fringes of underground music and unconcerned with fitting into any mold of indie rock or punk. During the label's extensive existence, Tom has put out early releases by legendary groups like Guided by Voices and Sebado, supported his local scene in Philly, putting out records by Strapping Field Hands, Brother JT, On, Rosalie, and the Writhing Squares, highlighted the covert genius of the Midwest with vinyl by Mike Rep, Times New Viking, and the late Jim Shepard, and most importantly, exposed the viability of underground scenes throughout the world by putting out stuff by Naked on the Vague, Ping Group, Alistair Galbraith, Sandoz Lab Technicians, and one of the most important bands of the past few decades, as far as I'm concerned, The Dead Sea. I recently met up with Tom in Philadelphia to discuss the origins of the label and how he got into the more experimental side of punk in Philly during the mid-80s. There were a lot of... basement man of war. Yeah, there was a a lot of transition in 84. You had... uh, you know, the stick man had pretty yeah. much gone. Why died kind of like, had, you know, they, they, the sun was out of the yard arm for them, although they were still around. Mm. I guess the bands that probably had the most cachet at that time like, were the Dead Milkmen were up and coming. Mm. Executive Slacks and Bunny Drums were still around. Yeah. Um, Electric Love Muffin maybe was around then. Yeah. The catalyst of Silk Breeze, from what I remember, that you did the first thing you did was a Halo of Fly seven inch. Right. When Tom started Silk Breeze at the cusp of the '90s, the environment for independent labels was still in its formative stages. For the first time, a large enough group of bands, fanzine editors, show promoters, and other various losers were able to form an international network to promote distro and sell records without commercial funding. Nonetheless, running an indie label came with its fair share of roadblocks. Label dropped the ball on that or something? The whole thing was like, well, the, you know, Silbreeze was a, a fanzine. Yes. And Tom Hazelmeyer was a fan. And he was doing, Force Exposure did a subscriber-only series then for singles. Yeah. So they had contacted Tom to do a Halo Flies 7-inch. So essentially, uh, all the parts for the one I did were the one he sent to Force Exposure, who rejected it. Mm-hmm. As I did that, I was trying to get Tom to do the Dead Sea record. They had, I'd been in contact with those guys. Oh, okay. And uh, was trying to find them a label mm-hmm. in the States. Mm-hmm. And 
I think there were a couple, like Tom wasn't really interested, but I think there are other couple of people that may have been interested. I don't think they wanted to, to uh, invest in a band that far away mm. with not that many fans. Yeah. And I had nothing to lose. Yeah. So I did it. Yeah. But I, it was the money from the Halo Flies record, which was amazing. I mean, back then, you know, I mean, I didn't know anything about sales. I had no idea really about that arm of distribution, which was selling. I mean, as a buyer at the record exchange was one thing, but now I'm selling records yeah. to a, a distributor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I found out the hard way that by the Dead Sea record that the way things worked on that Halo Flies record didn't work for yeah. everything else because they were a hot commodity yeah, then. Yeah. So. I could get COD on that, which was insane, and mm-hmm. probably for a price that was above market mm-hmm. at the time. But you know, it all went into the Dead Sea record, which you know I sat on for quite a while. Yeah, <laughs> and then they became. Then there was some cash. Oh, by the yeah, by the time Harsh Seventies Reality came along, like those old the Helen record, which by then was two years old, I think, mm-hmm. um, sold. Yeah, so that's I mean that that's kind of a, a big thing I want to talk about, like. For a lot of people, the Dead Sea are like this, you know, lightning bolt band. It's just, I, I, to me, there's nothing that really sounded like it before. Right. Um, you know, what was your first uh, impressions of it, hearing them? Like, was it just something? Could could you reference it to certain things, or were you just like, this is something that's sort of? Out I mean, nowhere? you know, um, when I bought the record, I bought it at Third Street. Mm. I was on lunch break. I worked at a publishing ha- firm then. Um, and it was like maybe a Thursday whenever new arrivals came in or something like that. And uh, there's the Dead Sea DR503 cover, and across the plastic sleeve it said, featuring Robbie Yates from the Verlaines. Yeah. So I'm thinking like it's going to be kind of like this, you know, pop music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I like too. Yeah, I love the Verlaines, yeah. Um, and then I got it home, and it was like this completely <laughs> off kilter, like almost like this heat and the throes of, yeah, like, you know, the La Brea tar pits or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably the most important band on the label would be what I consider to be the ultimate anti-power trio, New Zealand's Dead Sea. Formed in the late 80s, infusing the art brute of guitarist Bruce Russell and Michael Morley with the obtuse drumming of Robbie Yeats, the band added a new chapter onto the crude guitar heroics being explored in America with Sonic Youth. The band's double LP opus, Harsh 70s Reality, would define the label's aesthetic and propel the popularity of the label throughout the 90s. I was just thinking about this like a week or two ago, I got some record in the mail and the the old one sheet said something about the Silk Breeze sound. Yeah. And I was just like, that's kind of fucking stupid because yeah. to me, there's no the thing that makes it the label so important is that there's no sound. Like there's the Dead Sea. There's it's sort of like that hands. joke where like uh, the punchline is you give one blowjob and blank. You know, I don't know if you know that. Joke. No, please go ahead. <laughs> anyway, so you put out a Dead Sea record and suddenly you're you're kind of like you know that's that's your scarlet letter. So oh, yeah. You can do a like <laughs> okay. Rosalie's record and yeah. you know and then like oh, people right. just don't even have any concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah. still even thirty years later, you're they're like, what? You know, what are you doing on the noise label? 
can you remember sort of a, a pinpoint time that it felt like people were sort of catching up to the label with, you know, the Dead Sea or other things happening? I always felt like whatever we were doing, the door hadn't opened really yet. Mm-hmm. Even into the 90s when we were with Matador. In the post-Nirvana world of the early 90s, where independent labels like Sub Pop and Epitaph proved the underground could break through to the mainstream, other indie labels were looked at as commodities by the major players in the music industry. This meant once indies like Matador were receiving investments from major labels, this newfound stimulus allowed Matador and others to spread the wealth to labels as avant-garde as Silpreys. Yeah, let's talk about that the Matador thing. Like, how did that come about, and was it? What were the results of it? I think Matador wanted to. There were a few labels they wanted to kind of help mm-hmm. broker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had a you know the opportunity then after they'd signed to Wea or been you know got into business with Wea to uh, maybe help some. It was you know maybe a benevolent mm-hmm. thing on Gerard and Chris's part, Patrick. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, you know, there's, I don't know, it, it, it didn't really go wrong for us. We just put, I think we just put together like some of the most outrageous releases we could have. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it wasn't my idea. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, like Ride a Dove. Yeah, it was how like many the of those were made? Oh, God, tons. There was like, because of Wea, you, you know, you didn't, ha- it wasn't like you're doing a small pressing plant like Via Plat or some of these places that, uh, where you press a thousand and you get a, yeah. like more or less a thousand. You know, you get a production sheet. I mean, I remember at one point somebody from Wea calling me and they're like, "Yeah, we got your production sheet for this record. It says it just has one five zero zero." And I'm like, "Yeah," it's like that's got to be a mistake. <laughs> You're missing a zero. And I'm like, "Jesus Christ!" You know? I was like, "You know, this is Harry Pussy, right?" Like, <laughs> well, I think that's funny. I think the Harry Pussy CD. I think there's probably three thirty five hundred of those or something made. That's a staggering amount. And maybe Are they a keeping thousand. this table up? <laughs> and and um, ADA, after they saw the artwork, wouldn't distribute it then. So, you know, mm. they stick it to you, and then they don't really give you right. a way out. Yeah. Did, I mean, how many of those were actually sold, do you know? like. Oh, good question. I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> I, I've probably thrown away a bunch. Yeah. I've given Bill Orcutt hundreds of them over yeah. the years, you know, whenever he came to town. Just get these out of my house. And I still have a bunch <laughs> downstairs. And the uh, uh, right, uh, What Was Music CD. Yeah. It's uh, a great CD. I mean, it, it was, oh, yeah. to me, it's up there with the Crom CD, you know, oh, yeah. Cocaine Wars, in terms of a narrative, you know, uh, a recording that was meant for the CD um, format. format. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I think it really, it's, it's a masterpiece. Coming out of Florida, the duo known as Harry Pussy were the band on Silk Breeze that offered the visceral charge I needed coming from the world of hardcore punk into the world of experimental music due to their cacophonous sound and unhinged live shows. Definitely. Um, and as far as I you know, bring up Harry Pussy, like again, how was that correspondence? How did that happen through Bill? 
I got those first so, 45s, yeah. I think, through uh, Rat Bastard, Frank Falester. I think yeah. he probably sent those to me. Mm-hmm. And I wrote them, and I got a response back from Bill saying, yeah. I think he had seen an advertisement for Silk Breeze once that looked so fucked up that he was like, oh, these guys are great. <laughs> they get it. <laughs> <laughs> or they're sad or great, one or the other. You know? <laughs> a little from column A or from column B. <laughs> but definitely like Harry Pussy to me, I was like, oh, this is like the closest I'll get to seeing Void. Right. Like it was just so that was the one band everyone compared it to. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense. Yeah. There was like a, out of the th- three or four times I saw them, there was one time where, first time I was like, this is like Void. And there was one time we played it upstairs in Nick's where I was like, this sounds like Venom. <laughs> was that the one where they had the keyboard? Yeah. That was a great set. I, I think that keyboard only made it through like that short little stint, which was maybe four shows. Yeah. Because that keyboard was uh, purchased, I think, maybe in Richmond. Mm-hmm. So from Richmond going north, however many shows they played, four mm-hmm. shows. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't remember ever seeing it again. Yeah, that was a good set. I think that was with like Roy, did we're on? That was Roy a great bill. That was yeah, like, I think on and and yeah, yeah, and it, it was like a huge like yeah. somebody's bill that night. Yeah. Another welcoming element were the Silk Fest. Tom began throwing somewhere in the middle of the nineties as they were an excellent grab bag of the variety of crazy sounds the label provided, including everything from the solo drone of Alan Licht to the drunken revelry of Thomas Jefferson's slave apartments. And that's another thing, like another very formative thing for, for me were those Silk Breeze Fests. Right. Those were, yeah, that my, whatever, my uh, portal into a new world of music. Yeah. There. So, you know, was the brainchild of that just like I'm just gonna get a bunch of bands on my label together for two nights and because it was they were again just like the label they were very varied bills um, well the first couple were local mm-hmm. and I think we just did it because there wasn't a whole lot going on yeah uh, the Kyber Pass was a great venue back then mm. not because it was a great venue it was but the booking policy there was unlike any place I'd ever come across there mm. was no formality it wasn't like you know, you could talk to people in different venues here, and like they would come to the store and be like, "Hey, Tev Falco wants to play in my club. Should I get him?" We're like, "Of course, you got to yeah. get Tev Falco." Yeah. That kind of thing. But then you would have bands you'd want to play, and they're like, "I need demos. I need like press releases." And mm-hmm. you're like, "Shit, you come to my store all the time to you know like get me to like validate your what's going what on, doing, and then yeah. like I'm throwing you something, and you're like, just you know, it's ridiculous." So yeah. the Kyber, you know, Steve, uh, Stephen Simons, and, and Dave Simons were like. Well, hey, if you can make it happen, let's do it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was that easy. Yeah. Do you do any uh, sets from those fests or anything stick out in your your head? Or? For the ones, um, the first ones, I'm trying to remember who were on the first ones. I think Monkey 101, mm-hmm. uh, Rot Gut, which was oh, Greg, yeah. Greg Lick's band. Yeah. Um, trying to, geez, I, I, I don't even remember. remember. I mean, I have flyers for those yeah, things. Yeah, I remember... Um, Bruce but Cole with the Shadow Ring. He, there was yeah, there's a couple of Bruce Cole ones where he emceed. Yeah. So when he's down here, like that was the first time any of us ever met him, yeah. and uh, you know, he, 
because he just he's a character. He was yeah. he was amazing. Yeah. So the first time, yeah, first time he, this was the first time he's here. So he's here for what four five days maybe at the most. He stayed with Bob Malloy, and Bob loved having him there. And uh, after the fest was over, it was Sunday or Monday whenever he's going back. Bob walked him down. Bob lived up at Third and or Second and Brown in, in Northern Liberties. So he walked him down the Spring Garden subway stop, and he's like. Bruce, it was great having you. You know, come back and stay anytime. And Bruce's like, Bobby, I had a great time. What a great place. You guys are all great. And he's leaving to get on the subway and he comes back. He's, I got to tell you, Bob, I jacked off in your house. I won't tell you where. I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> so Bob didn't uh, invite him back. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> As expected, major labels stopped gambling on indies with DIY cachet. For some reason, the world wasn't ready for the greatness of Harry Pussy, which brought about a momentary lapse in Tom releasing records until MySpace and other burgeoning social media platforms allowed for Tom and a new generation of musicians and fans alike to connect while never leaving their house or putting on any pants. Tom saw this as a new opportunity to re-energize the label, starting with Ohio's Times New Viking. Well, the, the dip of the, you know, the initial incarnation of Silk Breeze, like how, did, how and why did that happen? I just, I mean, I wasn't, nothing was really selling. Yeah. And it just seemed futile to keep going I was getting more involved in cooking mm-hmm. I, I, before I'd been doing like odd jobs and things like that but I needed to bring home more money mm-hmm. so I took these jobs and like, you know, I'm suddenly working like 50 some hours a week mm-hmm. I didn't have time to really you know and my return statements were usually in the red mm-hmm. and I just stopped I just it wasn't really a conscious effort to stop but the, I, 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 I fucked off with a couple of things just because there were people I worked with mm-hmm. And those didn't really go anywhere. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it wasn't until I was out in Columbus for Christmas one year, I don't know, 2005 or something, mm-hmm. and Mike Rep had had this tape from for Times New Viking. I thought they were really good. Yeah. And uh, I was like, I'll put that out. Mm. So that was kind of, you know, yeah. a serendipitous still, restart. Yeah. And I re-listened to that a couple of weeks ago. It's still a fucking great record. It's still really good. Um, so that was sort of like the cattle, like the, the juice that needed. Yeah, that but got you, know, you remember that that time there's suddenly, you know, there's this renaissance of of, uh, of, yeah. of music that was yeah. suddenly like there's a generation of, of people who had like learned about mesthetics and stuff through yeah. Chuck Warner's labels. And mm-hmm. like we're kind of using that as a as a, a barometer yeah. and, and doing like Tyvek and, and Little Claw and some of these bands that were around. Um and it was a really cool scene there for like two yeah. or three years. Yeah. yeah. So you could just like find these bands that, you know, no one, and they might go from label to label, but mm-hmm. they were all really good. Yeah. And that was like, uh, that was the uh, era of like MySpace. Things like right. That. Yeah. You could find a lot of, ba- like, in, you know, in a I night. I think that's how the whole like Australian wing of, of Silt Breeze kind of came from 
finding somebody, I think, X No Barbecue X, and then to Naked on the Vague, and mm-hmm. Naked on the Vague to Fabulous Diamonds, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. And when that happened, were you sort of like, oh, like, I'm back in business? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, by then, I'd, I'd stopped cooking. I was uh, uh-huh. working at the, st- at the exchange again. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Yeah. By finding the most unique artists in independent music throughout these 30 years, Tom has avoided the common pitfalls that have taken down hundreds of other indie labels before him. You were doing like, you know, maybe four or five records a year at some point, would you say? I was going through Revolver for manufacturing yeah. distribution, and those records just... You know, there's. It's really hard to. It's, for all of your best intentions, trying to like you know like stutter the releases so they come out one every every couple of months. The manufacturer might just bill you all at once. Mm-hmm. So then Revolver has got to pay up all this money up front. Mm-hmm. So suddenly I'm in the red for yeah. months yeah. before I ever see any money. So yeah. like, and then at some point, you know. Like I said, my sale, I mean, like, there just wasn't as much interest as there used to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just decided that it would be easier for me to manufacture myself. They continue the distribution, what they still do, but mm-hmm. the manufacturing and things is more on me now, which is fine. I just mm-hmm. don't have the capital to just keep you know, pumping it out, pumping stuff out like yeah. you used to. Yeah. So as far as the recent stuff that you've, you've done, you know, um, how again, sort of how there was MySpace and everything. How how do you uh, I guess what would the I guess the term would be like? How do you uh, field it? How do you find oh, out? Oh, like my A and R. Yeah, what's your A and R? What's your A and R pitch? Uh, let's see. With Rosalie, well, she's local, yeah. mm-hmm. and she had a band uh, with an, another person. They'd been a, they'd been a couple, and they did. Um, I can't remember the name of it now, sadly. Um, but it was very much in this in the spirit of Sherlambadies. And that looked like something we were going to do. But she had been doing these solo recordings, which I thought were really great. Mm. And uh, it made more sense to go with a contemporary than something that wasn't really, you know, chances are we put that record out and no one would buy it. And then there was nothing to back it up. Mm. Whereas now contemporaneously, she's a solo artist and Mm. she's doing it. And I think it's done okay. Same with Writhing Squares, you know, pretty active band locally. Mm. And, uh, 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 small world experience where these people I had met in Brisbane when I was down there in 2013 I'd gotten a, a Pew grant to do re- music research in the wherever I wanted to go so I just went back to New Zealand again going back to the New Zealand thing like you went and visited there in the 90s like 92 like for, I went the first for time for a while right I was there a lot way I mean when I think back now the audacity I had to like just inflict myself on these people for <laughs> yeah, six yeah. weeks six weeks what um, again what are some of the highlights from, from that trip I mean was that the first time you met the Dead Sea guys in person I had met Bruce he'd come over to do mm-hmm. recon when all this stuff was started love you know, all these different labels are starting to fall into place. We're going to like manufacture expressway-related artists in the yeah. states, like Ajax and mm-hmm. Feel Good All Over and, and Drag City. Mm-hmm. So he came over and, and just you know glad you know came over and introduced himself to everybody. And mm-hmm. Started putting names, faces, yeah. and names and whatnot. 
So I had met him, but yeah, I hadn't met anybody else. So I was down there. I stayed with Bruce and his wife, mm. Kate, for most of the time. Mm. And then I was, uh, you know, in Auckland for a little while, Christchurch for a while. Yeah. Were you were you there for the recording of the live Dead Sea record? The, yes, I was. Yeah. <laughs> I was. It was kind of like I was like, man, if I'm down here and none of these fuckers want to play, it's like yeah. unbelievable. Uh-huh. You know. One of their biggest champions is in town. But yeah, no exactly. One be like, I'm the bothered. big shot from yeah. America. Made you who you are. <laughs> so I don't know. We were fucking around like like totalis turns or something. Then you know that just the idea of like doing a like a mock up of that, and then the mock up became like, well, let's just like, fuck. Let's do it. They were gonna they were gonna rehearse. Mm-hmm. So I kind of coerced them into recording, re- making it the, like a fake live record. Yeah. So we just that's how. it... So I brought the tapes back with me. We yeah. went down to Fish Street, I think, the day before I left and got everything, like, you know, ironed out. Yeah. Dotted all the I's, mm-hmm. crossed the T's, and mm-hmm. I took these reel-to-reels to Auckland and from Auckland back to the States. Hmm. And there is, like, fake applause on that, right? That was... We... I remember Michael or Bruce, like, scouring tapes they had, and they finally found some smattering applause and on a, on a renderer's tape that we just kind of, like, just smacked and just... Put that on there. It'd be better if you did like Kiss Alive (laughs) or like Judas Priest. You can't imagine how hard those records would have been to find. (laughs) No, I'm sure. uh, I'm sure there's not many Kiss records in uh, Bruce Russell's collection. Maybe I don't know. I don't I think it's just one of those things that once it gets in your blood, you just, it's, that's just how you think. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there's things that I would like to own or, or have that mm. it seems to me that if I don't do it, I can't really count on anyone else to do it, maybe. Mm. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Tom Lax. Be sure to check out the label's Bandcamp page at soapbreeze.bandcamp.com. Be sure to pick up my books at bazillionpoints.com or revhq.com. This show is produced by Elliot Buca. I'm Tony Rettman, and be sure to check us out next time on Sandpaper Lullaby. I know it's gonna work out just fine. Just eat the horse's head So stand up and run